Many of us, I'm sure, have had the experience while driving uh, in a winter storm um, with, with lots of dirty slush on the roads uh, of when again and again as you're driving, your windshield just keeps getting covered with the muck of what's on the streets, the slush flying off the wheels of the car in front of you. And it's pretty hard to see in those kinds of conditions, at least for a few seconds or so before you hit the button on your windshield wiper lever and get the spray, the wiper fluid to come on, and, uh, and then it cleans it off and you can see clearly again and continue to move on down the road in the right way. Um, so life itself can kick up a lot of dirty slush in the everyday experiences that we have in the world. So from sickness to fear of failure to being laden with too much responsibility to material or, uh, sorry, to marital or to relational challenges in our lives, to premature and untimely deaths that we experience, to uh, intellectual and scientific objections to our faith, even to having great success, which can also be a, a, a way of getting dirty slush. There's, there's so much around, swirling around in the world that we live in, in our day-to-day experience, that really genuinely has the capacity to dirty the windshield. And we all know that when the windshield gets dirty, um, that's a significant problem for moving forward. If we keep moving down the road with our view obstructed, uh, we will too easily veer off the road and find ourselves in a world of trouble that we wish we weren't in. So think about this for a moment uh, as followers of Jesus. If we don't see the reality that God loves us fully as his children in Christ and accepts us as we are, we we may spend much of our lives um, courting the love and the approval of others or of of other other entities by, by pursuing adventure or power or sex or money or whatever and making compromises along the way. If we don't see the fact that God delights in us and rejoices over us as his children, then we'll be prone to misguided attempts to earn God's favor and blessing, which will actually, in the end, leave us very tired and probably dry up any sense of life and vitality that we have in our relationship with the Lord. If we don't see and get excited about the hope that belongs to us in Christ, then it's very possible that we'll actually be busy setting our hope on other things, on lesser things, things that might actually be good, but things that aren't really the full substance of the hope that we have in Christ. Maybe a promotion, or attaining a particular degree, or getting married, or having children, or fill in the blank. And when these things, good as they may be, again, prove elusive or less than fulfilling, we'll be um, either prone to great discouragement and despair because they haven't actually been achieved, something's blocked our path to them, or we'll quickly discard them and and embrace something else, you know, some other thing that will, will set our hope upon that thing as well. The life and joy that rightly belong to us in Christ will, will certainly would be dis- diminished. Um, a final example, if, if we don't see clearly the ultimate power of God over all things in this world, in this created world, a power which is toward us and for our good, then we may be far more susceptible in our lives to fear and to anxiety and to insecurity um, then we might otherwise need to be in Christ. And all of those things kind of zap life out of us. And that's not to say, obviously, as we talked a couple weeks ago, that we don't struggle with those things as human beings. But we could go on and on and on. So, so my question for you is, what is obstructing your view in your life right now? What is, what is it that's dirtying up the windshield? Probably something different for each one of us.
But clearly, one of the great battles of our faith is the battle to actually see clearly what is true and what is real about God, about the world, and about ourselves, and to see that with great clarity. The Apostle Paul knows this well, and his opening prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, we were there two weeks ago, we're back in Ephesians 1 tonight, um, verses 15 through 23, if you want to open your Bibles up to that, if you have your Bible, begins with this petition that addresses this problem of things getting dirty, not being able to see clearly. He, he prays that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. And then he goes on to, to three three different things that we'll look at in, in a little bit, but I want to stop here for a moment. So Paul, in verses 1 through 15, really 3 through 14, he's actually just expressed the tremendous blessing that belongs to each one of us in Christ, in Jesus. And we talked about a couple weeks about being in this ocean of blessing, the sphere of blessing in Christ. And so in verses 15 through 23, he's not pronouncing some kind of new blessing. But what he's doing is he's saying, he's praying that the Ephesian saints would actually appreciate to the fullest possible extent in their lives the implications of the blessing that they have already received in Christ. So that they would appreciate to the fullest possible extent in their lives the implication of the blessings that they've already received in Christ. In other words, Paul wants the windshield to be clear for these saints in Ephesus. He wants them to see and to behold and to savor and to appreciate and to be rooted in the good things that God has done for them in the Lord Jesus. And to know at the most basic level what God is for them in Christ. So he says this, he wants them to know this, not just kind of cognitively, not just intellectually, not just kind of assenting to some cold statement of facts or of doctrine, but he wants this to be a deep awareness flooding the depth of their being with the light of God in in such a way that it would influence and impact all of their actions their thoughts, and their emotions. He uses this phrase, I want the eyes of, he prays that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. Now the heart in Paul's day was not just the, sometimes we think it's the place where you feel. But in, 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 in Paul's world, the heart was the seat of not only the emotions, but also of thinking and, and the intellectual operations of the human being um, and of the will. And so it was this place where, where, where thought, will, and, and feeling came together. It really is a shorthand way of saying the entire person, all of you, that makes you you. I want that to be opened at its most basic level to the great things that God has done for you in Christ. That's his prayer. And he says, I want you to have a spirit of of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So again, he wants it at the most core level of your being, but he also wants it in the knowledge of God, meaning it's not just knowledge of bare facts, but it's knowledge of a person that's very personal and real and warm inside of you, a God who has the ability to be encountered, not just read about, to be experienced, to be prayed to, to be related to, to interact with. That's where he wants these things to be known, deep down within. So before I get to the specific things um, which Paul wants us to know and that he wants to root the Ephesians, let's just ask this question. So how does this happen? How does this kind of illumination take place? How, How does the windshield get cleaned off according to this text? And the answer is actually um, more 
uh, is, is not is actually a little bit more complex than it is just straightforward and simple, which is actually a, a really good thing. It's a combination primarily of, of two things. One is of the illumination and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of the believer. So there's very much a reality here. So Paul's praying, you know, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. He's not just praying, look, I want you to look harder. But he's praying, and most commentators would say that the spirit that he speaks of here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whose job, whose ministry is one of illumination. The faculty of sight within the heart is given by the Spirit of God to see the things which are otherwise unseeable. So there's very much a reality for this thinking about cleaning off the windshield that that does come from our um, dependent posture before the Lord in prayer, much like Paul's demonstrating here. That comes from us seeking after Christ and saying, Lord, please reveal these things to me more and more in my life, that, they, that I might see them with greater clarity and with greater poignancy in my heart and in my mind. So there's that reality. Um, but that reality is then balanced by another reality that Paul gives voice to here in this text, which is the fact that, that the windshield gets clean not only by the illumination or the enlightenment of the Spirit, which is something that God does to us, but but in the midst of that, also through the engagement and the use of our mind and our thinking to be reflecting on the realities of what God is and, who, and what God has done in the world around us. So he goes on in this text, so we'll get to in a moment, and he talks about the fact that God has raised Christ from the dead. And he points the believers to actually go and think about these realities that God has actually accomplished in the world. So this kind of, um, this kind of windshield-clearing uh, idea is both the spirit illuminating and the mind mulling over and reflecting on. And of course, these two, these two things have a kind of dancing around one another, probably not capable of being separated from one another, but they work together and we engage them together. So we can't drive a wedge between them and say, well, you know, I'm just going to think my way to God. I'm going to think my way through these things. I know this stuff. I got it, you know, and, and, and read theology and read biblical commentaries and this is all making sense to me. And on the other hand, we, we can't just say, well, you know, all I'm going to do is grab, you know, just, just get on my knees and go in the sanctuary every day and, and hold my hands up and ask for God to act on me in some way. But there's both of these things being united together here in this prayer of Paul's for the church in Ephesus. I'd say much of us are probably prone to one or the other of those ways, aren't we? Just wired differently different uh, different ways of, of doing things in the world. And maybe the way that's weaker for you is a way to think about, now how can I engage that way a little bit more fully this week? Whether that be the way of prayer and dependence upon the Spirit or maybe the way of engagement of your mind and thinking about the things that God has done on your behalf in Christ. So Paul actually goes on then to point out Two basic things that I want to focus on. So there's actually three things here. But he says, you know, I want these things to happen. I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you might know. And then he fills in three things in Ephesians 1. First, he says that you would know that what is the hope to which he has called you. Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And I want to bring both of these things together for a moment and talk about glory for just a second. Glory. It's not something we talk about a whole lot. Um, but it should be something that we talk about more. It's interesting that when Paul refers to God in this, t- in this text, he says, you know, I'm praying to the God 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? The Father of glory. The Father of glory. So he's already got that going in terms of his mind here and thinking and what he's writing about. And then he goes on to talk about the hope to which he has called you. And then he goes on to say, and the glorious inheritance of God in the saints. So there's glory again, glorious inheritance. So this theme of glory is pertaining to this, uh, is connected to this reality of hope. And they're both finding their way here in this text. Um, Glory is actually intimately connected to the role that God has given to humankind in his creation. And what do I, what do I mean by this? I mean to say we, we were actually created for glory as human beings. And the glory is not the glory of, um, you know, whether, what, whether it'll be the Patriots or the Giants tonight. It's not that glory. It's not the glory of the praise of all these people around us. It's not the glory of the spotlight or of the millions of people watching us play some game. The glory that God has made us for is the glory of reigning and ruling over his creation as his subjects, as his stewards, made in his image. It's the glory of of being fully who we were made to be, which is God's image bearers in the creation and exercising rule and dominion and fruitfulness over that creation in a way that reflects wonderfully upon our Heavenly Father. So it's that glory that we were created for, but it's that glory also that we fell from in the garden and subsequently ever since, this glory that we were made for. But now in Christ, it's that glory which is actually being restored, that we were made for this role, this function. It's interesting, another passage which is great um, on hope and glory is Romans 8, where Paul's speaking both about hope and about glory, that all creation awaits the glory of the sons of God waiting for this fullness of restoration. And here, in this text, we find Paul pointing us to the future of our full and final restoration as the children of God reigning over the new creation in Christ and with Christ, who is the firstborn of that new creation. So here's where this maybe comes down to earth a little bit. So, in the midst of a world that is competing for glory in all of the wrong ways, and in a lot of ways, like what we'll see tonight, for those of you who watch the game. In the midst of this world where where we think that we've missed the boat, perhaps, of glory, where we think that we've been left out, where we've been used up, we've missed our chance, etc., etc., Paul is saying, no, 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 no. On the contrary, that, that in Christ, yours is glory, and that is your hope, and that's what you're moving toward. You haven't missed the boat at all. We are God's glorious inheritance as the saints coming to this place of glory, and our hope is glory. And that's where Jesus has gone before us, and that's where he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father, as Paul goes on to say in a moment, over his enemies. And we're going there with him. So in fact, what is true of Jesus, the firstborn, is also true of us who find ourselves in Jesus. Paul goes on in in chapter 2, verse 6, to say that we, like Jesus, have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Now, let's go back to the Super Bowl for just a second. Let's assume... Let's assume, I'm not saying who I'm rooting for at all, but let's assume that the Patriots win tonight. Now here's this picture I I want you to have in your mind. All of the fans, like Jason, all of the fans who have the gear, whose only heavy lifting throughout the entire season has been to get the chips and the beer from the kitchen into the living room, they'll all be lifted up to glory tonight 
with their team, with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the rest of them. And watch, you watch, tonight around 10 o'clock, when the game is over, they'll storm to the streets in a parade of glory for what has just been accomplished on their behalf. Now, we might say that's a bit ridiculous. Maybe. But that's a really good picture of what's actually happened for those of us who find ourselves in Christ. Jesus has passed through the muck and the mire of creation. He's passed through the challenges and the difficulties. Jesus has walked in the steps that you have walked in. He's felt the forsakenness that you sometimes feel in a far deeper way than you will ever feel. And he's passed through all of that and gone to the death on the cross on our behalf. And he's been faithful. And in his faithfulness, he's now been lifted up by the Father into glory. And as you've been united with Jesus by faith, you too have been lifted up into glory. And because it's happened to him, it's already, in some sense, happened to us. Paul says we've been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. He says we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms with Christ. It's happened to us. And it will happen in full when, that, when the reality of Jesus returning actually takes place. That's what Paul longs for them to see, to know deeply what is the hope of your calling. What is the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints? That's a tremendous encouragement to you tonight as you maybe find yourself stuck in changing dirty diapers or doing challenging research or missing a promotion or suffering from significant sickness. Because even in the midst of that place where it feels like the lights have gone out actually, There is the reality of your future in Christ and of your present right now in Christ in the heavenlies in glory. You haven't missed the boat. And so you don't have to go running after it everywhere else. But in the midst of the obscurity, in the midst of the the, um, mundaneness of the daily things that the Lord has entrusted to you, as you walk in those things faithfully day by day, You're living a life of glory as you bear witness to Jesus in a faithful stewardship of what he's entrusted to you. Paul wants them to know this deeply. And knowing this helps to clean off the windshield a little bit. But there's a greater thing that Paul points to in this text to clean the dirty slush off the windshield. And that's where he goes in verse 19, all the way to the end of this chapter. And he says, and what it, he wants to know the third thing, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul amasses word after word after word to drive his point home here in verses 19 and 20. The gist of this section is this, that there have been two great displays of power in the world. Now understand for a moment that Ephesus is a place of power. Ephesus is a place of tremendous trade. There's economic power. There's political power in the Roman Empire. There's religious power. There's all kinds of witchcraft. You go to Acts 19 and you see this, this um, uh, story of them burning their books of magic that were worth a lot of money when they convert to Jesus. So there's lots of power going on in Ephesus. 
But what Paul says, and and now understand this as well, that the church in that day hadn't started institutions like Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale. The church wasn't sitting on the boards of big, um, you know, uh, strong ministries that were global and and reaching and and slick and and clean and, and effective. The church was a renegade group of people that had been drawn together underneath a crucified Messiah that the world thought was a joke up to this point. So we have to understand the context into which Paul's writing this letter. And, and there is no kind of glory in the church. There's only risk and, and, and potential danger and suffering that comes from proclaiming the name of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you were wise, not many of you were of good standing, and so on and so forth. And what Paul says in the midst of this world of power and this world of glory going on around him is actually these things find their real home in you, in Jesus. And the two big acts of power are, one, the resurrection of Jesus. Everybody dies. Everybody decomposes. But the power of God has reversed that in the, in the person of Jesus. So there's this one display of tremendous power. And the second display of power is not just in Jesus' resurrection, but it's also in Jesus' ascension and his being taken up to the heavenly realms and seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the gist of what Paul is saying is, look, you've seen this great and mighty power in Jesus, who's now, by the way, not only been lifted up to the right hand of the Father, but who's been put over all other powers and authorities and rulers, any angelic, demonic, uh, human, institutional, ruling, authority, thing that influences human life. Jesus has been placed above all of those things as the head over all things. And by the way, That power, that power is at work in your life. That's what he wants them to know. More than anything else. The immeasurable greatness of his power, which is at work toward us. In us. Now you might say, now wait a second. I don't really feel that power every day. You know, my my life... It doesn't feel very powerful. And most of my days, I feel like I'm just barely making it through what I need to get through, if that. A lot of days, I feel like I'm just completely struck down, crawling, you know, for a drink in the desert, dying of thirst. This is the way I feel. And, and to that, we have to say that the windshield has gotten dirty. That what we do when we come into this relationship with Jesus is we begin to, to rethink and to re-see the way that we experience our everyday reality. And we affirm by faith that God is actually at work deeply and, and wonderfully in the hearts of his people. Now obviously when that power was incarnate in the person of Jesus, he too suffered. He too sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And that power took him to the place of weakness. And so I don't want us to ever confuse the reality of this power that has displayed itself in these mighty acts of resurrection and the exaltation, the ascension of Jesus into thinking that that has to be my experience day in and day out from glory to glory. Because actually we find if we look and study our scriptures and we study the life of Jesus and we study the life of Paul and we study the life of the early apostles 
and the early Christians, we begin to see that that power is at work in some fairly paradoxical ways. But we affirm it deeply as the people of God and we embrace it wholeheartedly as we think about our lives. That power is at work toward us to believe. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, the psalmist looks around him and sees the wicked prevailing. The psalmist sees all the glory going to all the wrong people, and he sees all the power in all the wrong hands. And he wrestles with this, and he struggles with this before the Lord. You should read it tonight, uh, if you can. And then the psalm turns, there's this hinge, where it says, you know, and my heart was burning as I mused within me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. And the psalmist goes from this place of turmoil to this place of having his perspective put back in the proper place where he now sees clearly the reality that to have God is to have everything. And to have everything but not to have God is to have nothing. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For those of us who are in Christ, who sometimes see the glory of the world all around us and feel like it's kind of passing us by, who sometimes see the power of the people in the positions and the media and the celebrity all around us and sometimes think, man, where are we? I beg of us to come into this place of the word of God and to see again the reality that we find ourselves with God in that position that is the most enviable and the most wonderful and the most celebratory that we could ever find ourselves in. To know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. God is on our side. God has made us for glory. That is our, that is our rightful place in creation that we have now in Jesus. And that is something to celebrate and to rejoice in. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that they'd see clearly, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. I pray that the eyes of our hearts as well would be enlightened as we go out into this week in Christ.